dear friends, I see that my lecture is done to be about spiritual awakening in our time, which is the subject that matters now probably more than anything else. Now, we've got an hour to talk about this great theme. And I shall have failed in the lecture if you don't go out filled with more courage, more enthusiasm, more sense of hope, a sense indeed of spiritual awakening. This is the great phenomenon of our time. The most extraordinary things are happening. While the world appears to be falling to bits and maybe having to be changed very notably. A huge event is happening which is transforming our lives. Like a rising tide of thought, of power, of love, this impulse is flooding through the earth. This gathering here of this festival is an image of it. To go with an open mind and look at these stalls, to look at what is being offered, gives us some picture of the extraordinary changes that are upon us and what is most exciting at our time is that this begins really to be visible and to be recognized we who are concerned with it all of us here are not just trying to present or understand a thought out plan for improving society that's happened often enough in the last century or two. But we are being carried by a rising tide of new consciousness, which begins to touch us with a new sense of joy, anticipation, excitement, and, I repeat the word, a real flooding of love in the human heart. It is a power of love sweeping through the earth. Now, the enormous fun of this is that to the rational, logical mind, what they tell us, the left hemisphere, the masculine analytical mind. The world looks pretty bad and pretty black, obviously. 
You realize that this mind of ours, the brain, is divided into its two sides. Left hemisphere, the masculine analytical side. Right hemisphere, the more feminine, sensitive, intuitive faculty, which can apprehend the living whole, the great oneness of things. This, as one can see it, is like the thinking of this side, is like a doorway into the immensity of the universe. And the coming to consciousness is like a bubbling spring. Now, with a bubbly, bubbling spring, you can't tell what really what's going to bubble until it's bubbled, obviously. It's coming down from the great heights and emerging as a crystal stream that goes tinkling down. You can see in the great design of the human being this division of consciousness does the most wonderful thing. It's a point where a being within nature can be in touch with the immensity of the great design. And by dividing the brain and giving an analytical left hemisphere the more, as I say, masculine quality, it is possible to observe the spring, the bubbling up. Essentially, this is the poetical mind. Out of this thinking comes great poetry. And that's why poetry is so important in our time, becoming in a new way important. But we need the ability to watch, to think about thinking, think about our own thinking. Watch and explore in thought. Now, I'm not talking today about anything that you're meant to believe. The New Age movement is not, or should not be, an attempt to impose belief. We are called on to explore ideas and discover that these ideas are alive. Now, this is very exciting. I like to take one, I'll give you one central idea. The thing in you that can say I. I am. is a droplet of life, obviously, is alive. Now also we can think that God is life. Life is God. Take that as a thought. Hold it as a thought. Wherever you apprehend life, that is what we mean by God. It's a wonderful thought. Life can't possibly die. You are alive. This droplet 
immortal droplet of God is inevitably eternal. It can't possibly die. It doesn't make any sense to think it can die. <coughs> We're getting this thought that this being in you is housed in a wonderfully designed temple which we call the body. Any spiritual being descending to earth, descending into the heavy density of earth, needs to be protected by the housing of a body. You see, a spiritual being is capable of moving like Ariel instantly around the earth. Society obviously would be entirely different, will be entirely different, when we've left this body and moved onto that plane, when instantly we can be wherever we project our thought. For we shall be part of a vast, endless ocean of life and thought, which is divine. We belong to that, but we are separated from it. In order that we shall come down to earth and go through a training and experience which can only happen on this dimension. Now I want you to realize that this is a real reversal of the thinking of the last century. It's a turnabout in the very center of our consciousness. And we are waking up to this extraordinary impulse of vision. You see now, it is alive. You are alive. This being is palpably alive. Take the idea that life can't be extinguished. Once you in your mind see that you aren't your body, but your body is a wonderfully designed temple to receive a spiritual being, then we've started on the path of exploration. You are an immortal droplet of divinity. It's a wonderful thought. As such, you cannot possibly die. This is a tremendous thought. It's really a breathtaking thought. Now, you're not being asked to believe that. You're invited to think it. This is the point I want to make. <coughs> you see, the rational, logical mind, the left hemisphere mind, can so easily say, well, how am I to believe that? You can't prove that. We've built our science on the assumption that you can, may only believe what you can weigh and measure with the senses, what you can prove with the senses. 
And it's true we've built a great science on the sense-bound thinking. But we are called upon to learn sense-free thinking. To find a different form of a way of exploring into realms that you cannot prove with the rational mind. So what is the technique? The technique is a very clear one. You do not have to believe. What I'm saying you haven't got to believe. If I were to demand belief, you would very rightly begin to argue. But I'm not asking belief. Think it. Realize that you are so designed that you can grasp an idea, seize it out of the ether and put it in your heart. And this is a wonderful idea. In fact, it means that the part of you that matters, that for it there can be no death. It is immortal, it is eternal. It cannot possibly die. There is no death. In our death-ridden culture with 90% of every news on TV or on radio about death, we are discovering the great truth. Or can I put it this way? We have the real news, which is that there isn't any death. It doesn't exist for the part of a human being that matters. This passing ephemeral body, beautiful though it is, ages and ultimately is discarded. But that doesn't finish you. It's one of the terrible survivals of the medieval days that we assume that you are down there under that tombstone. Ah, she lies beneath the sod there. She's not lying beneath the sod there. Her bones are buried in that tomb. Requiescat in pace. Rest in peace to eternity. What a horrible thought. <laughs> and it isn't true. You don't rest in peace there. You have a nice ritual to put your bones down there. And you have a nice tombstone that does honor to you. But you aren't there, you're released into that higher realm. <coughs> and it's quite a technique now to recognize that you have the capacity to seize on an idea for its beauty. And I give you that idea because it's a central one. That you are a divine droplet and then, which cannot possibly die. Well, we can't prove it. Right, don't prove it. But if you like it, take the idea, put it in your thinking and decide to act as if it were true. While reserving judgment, don't believe or disbelieve, but act it, live it. Now, for the time being, can I say for the next week, or the next day, I promote you 
all to being divine beings. We are all part of God and we cannot possibly die. Cheers! In our, I repeat the phrase, death-ridden culture. This is rather splendid news. We've got something that matters. Most of our countrymen don't believe it. They believe they die when they're dead. We are beginning to see an alternative, which is so exciting that it's worth playing with. Now you try it out, and you will become a much more tolerant, much more tolerable, much more loving human being. As from now, you recognize that you are an imperishable droplet of divinity. Well, you play that game now. And where all that heavens, now where is it going to lead us to? William Blake wrote, We are set on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. We are set on earth. In other words, once you start this thinking, it gets you a long way. The earth is then a training ground. You see, we've established, we've, we've taken the idea, incidentally, anybody who doesn't like it, I shall not be offended if you get up and walk out. But I would submit that you must be a very dull dog if you're not moved by the notion that you are totally immortal. It's a wonderful idea. So, everybody can stay? Right. <laughs> I got you there. <clears throat> What's going to happen in the world as people begin really to see this? I repeat that you can't prove it and you haven't got to prove it but you can live it. It does mean taking another idea, we are led on from one to another, that ideas themselves are alive. This I find a very stirring thought. The Essene book of creation, counterpart of Genesis, starts not with in the beginning God created heaven and earth, but without beginning the law that is the Lord, that's the source, creates life and thought. Conceive a great ocean of life and a great ocean of thought poured out from a, a, a source, the source, the great source, a perpetual new spring of fresh life living life. Just think of that. And think of the rather dismal second law of thermodynamics that everything is running downhill and trundling to a stop. Entropy. But we've got the idea that there is a spring, a source, where 
the divine ideas pour total fresh total fresh life and the ideas what are these ideas now take this one that that ocean of thought the ocean of God thought and the strands of God thought are of course alive thought is alive in this sense and these are what we call the angels the whole of ethereal space is thronged with ideas which are alive and are beings and can therefore shroud themselves ensheath themselves in a protective surround to enable them to enter a planetary level now interesting here you hear he said there cannot be life on Venus is there life on Venus? no there can't be because it would heat is so great we're asking the wrong question we're actually asking could this body live on Venus? the answer is palpably no you shrivel up immediately <coughs> is there life on Venus everything is ultimately alive Venus is a living creature as Gaia the earth is a living creature everything is alive ultimately different levels of life intensity of life the real meaning of Jacob's ladder starting from the ultimate glorious brilliance of light and heat which is the spiritual sun the highest thinkable radio vibration down all the steps in the ladder down to solid earth and rock finally frozen hard crystalline rock all the way up and down and this level of matter is just so designed that this human being the human being a spiritual being can take to himself herself the temple body as a protection and be slowed down to operate on earth we of course couldn't go to Venus but an exalted being of light and flame could wrap itself up in fire and of course go and live on Venus and then possibly the Venusians also know how to reduce their vibratory rate and appear among us having taken on a physical body there may be Venusians among us anybody offering? no? One there, good. Pray. Well, see the excitement that this kind of thinking gets us to. I would dare to say the fun of this sort of thinking. Right, for the moment, you are divine beings. Part of the being of God. I think that's obvious, isn't it? If God is life, you are alive, 
you are a droplet of life. So, you're part of God. Right away, God is not miles and miles away behind the stars. But he's wherever you apprehend life. Therefore, this room is full of life. Full of God. Some of it on a visible level. Visible to our ordinary senses. For our senses, eyes and ears and all that, are attuned to this level in Jacob's ladder. We are, I repeated, they are slowed down in order that we may operate on this plane. We who, like Ariel, can shoot around the world in a split second, are slow, we could not carry on our earthly life at that pace. So we are slowed down by giving this wonderful body. The body is the temple. Designed. Several times I've said designed. Now will you get this one quite clear too? This earth. This beautiful planet earth. Carrying the integrated field of living nature is a work of art, a great design. Lift out of the idea that it's chance, somehow chance natural selection has produced it and us. Take the idea, I repeat, don't ha you don't have to believe it, but live with the idea if you like it. To me it's intensely thrilling. The whole of nature is the most wondrous design, starting from the great whole, which is God. It's a work of art and a design to create a setting into which a spiritual being, a human being, can enter for his, her, training and education. It's a wonderful planet. It's probably the most beautiful of the planets. And the conception is that it was, has been designed to enable this being to enter and come down and go through experience apparently separated from God. It doesn't mean that God isn't there. He is. He, it is, wherever there is life. But as far as we're concerned, the being that we are, the human being having so evolved, built up, built up through the ends, until he, she becomes like this. This being, has reached a point of consciousness at last when it, he, she, can realize what he's doing, realize what the purpose is, and in freedom take control. Try to stretch your mind back and widen that mind of yours. 
grasp the conception of it being a design and a work of art. And we get the picture that first is conceived in the divine mind the idea of man. And God said, let us make man after our image, after our own image. Male and female created he then. What is the image of God? Obviously a spiritual being, vast. A focal point of thought and of love and the volition of will. And here's the most exciting idea that God first of all creates, before anything else he creates, the archetype of man. Long before there's any, any physical matter. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy hands which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor it's all too easy to think at first sight that quotation is rather negative when I consider the heavens the work of thy hands which thou hast ordained all the great plans what on earth is man that you should be mindful of him, we little creatures? And the son of man that thou hast visited him, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. This is what we are the great primal archetype of God's thought in the pattern of God and then the creation of a level at the bottom end of the Jacob's ladder in which that spiritual being can take to itself a body a temple in which it can operate not at the pace of the spiritual world, but in detached freedom. In other words, we get the clue that this planet is the planet of freedom. The tenth hierarchy, a little lower than the angels after the nine great hierarchies, the tenth hierarchy is man a being destined for creative freedom. Now, in a sense, the angels don't need freedom. They're not interested in freedom in our sense because they are part of the thinking of God and insofar as they're individualized, their sole total delight is to fulfill the will of God, to serve God. Well, it's almost as if the, the Almighty looking down said, look here, it's all working very well, but couldn't we have a bit more fun? Couldn't we... Let us create 
a check down there. Another hierarchy. Like us. With freedom of choice. And see what they do with it. And with the hope that they will come back to us, to God, to the high wells, of their own choice, to cooperate creatively with us, to become, in other words, co-creators, friends of God, sons of God, co-creators with God. This begins, we begin to see why this planet is such not only so beautiful, but of such interest to the higher worlds. Why it is being monitored so carefully by the higher worlds, and why it appears they are so determined that it shall not be simply blown up by us in our folly, by the errant steward of the planet, who was given dominion over the planet. Now we've come to this critical stage, eons of evolution, leading up to the end of the Piscean Age and the opening of the Aquarian Age. We are coming to that phase which could not have been understood before, really fully understood before our century and our generation, as to what man really is for. What is man that you're mindful of him? What's it all about? And the answer would seem to be that the divine plan is to allow a creature, a hierarchy of beings, to cultivate freedom of independent choice and free creativity and come back to the Father, come back to God of free choice, as I repeat the great word, a co-creator. It is as if the angelic world, looking down at the planet, put the planet down, look at it, how beautiful it is. But at present, up to now, those chaps down there really have hardly invented anything in the real sense. I mean that we, the angels, over the eons and eons, have made most of the inventions ourselves. The wasps have been making paper for the last 90 million years, and we've now invented how to do it. And so, but that's another lecture which is fascinating, almost all the inventions are reinventing what nature has already invented. Ooh, that's fascinating. Even the human body. I'm being naughty to myself now because this is a risk, it's, but I'd like to try to catch this passing thought. The human body is the temple. It's designed to reflect the archetype of man, focalizing thought and love and volition. And the design has produced the physical counterpart of that ethereal archetype so that the brain <coughs> harbors thought and the chamber of the heart holds love 
and the metabolic system will create evolution. So in this temple, this living temple, enables the being to come down and to think, to act, to do, to create, to love. And the joke is that our great inventive period, we are now children of the Industrial Revolution. And much of most of the trouble we're facing now is the product of these inventions. But the curious thing, if your imagination can take it, is that the first critical invention of the Industrial Revolution is the internal combustion engine, which is really like a great stomach. It's like this system, in which you put certain materials in, which when they heat and liquid and that sort of thing, break them down, creates energy. And so that sort of released so much of the creation of the Industrial Revolution. And the next stage is, uh, is a lifting towards the more refined the flow of that makes up this heart system, this central part of man, which is the delicate play of liquid and warmth and air and light, which is like the, um, the motor car. All that range is in a sense a kind of reflection of this um, this system, this, the, the heart system of man, the chest system. And finally, then the world that we're entering now, the whole electronic world, is an externalization of this long ago invented structure of the human brain and mind. That's the world we're entering now. So far, it's as if we've externalized the invention here and reinvented it for our own purposes. And another aspect of the human body too, this wonderful body and wonderful design is reflected into the whole of the nature kingdoms. You know that there are the four great angels, beings of the evangelists the bull the lion the eagle and the angel man the bull the mammal is just a great digestive system when you think of a cow manuring the earth and with those great slow eyes it's as if this in the totality that is going to be the temple this part was externalized and spread over the earth and then the bull the lion the eagle the lion, then, is a great chest system. 
think of the lion has almost no tummy. And the great powerful chest and the great mane hanging over its shoulders and the great thunderous roar. All this. And the eagle. The whole bird kingdom is in a sense a metamorphosis of throat and skull. Think of those birds' legs, funny little sticks, with a tool at the bottom, as opposed to the splendor of the human leg. And think of the flashing of birds' plumage. And if you study their plumage, if you look at the beauty of a bird, if you really look at its feathers, you'll find that the color is impregnated from the outside quite convincingly where the two feathers lie over each other you'll find that the color here if you take that feather away the shape is still left as if the light carried the color and it only could partially impregnate it as if it comes from outside and further it appears that the feathers the cells of the feathers begin from the outside, form from the tip inwards. They don't start from the inside and spread outwards. They start from outside and work inwards, and then ultimately join together. In other words, you've got a great living force which is creating the bird element. So these, it's, you are getting the hint that in the design of the temple for the human spirit you have the whole of nature split up and spread out to create a setting complex enough to carry the human being that anything as complex as the ensouled body needs a highly complex and evolved um, surround And therefore, the human being, man, comes last, not because he's grown out of an ape, but because that great archetype, first in creation, could not come down and detach and develop on earth until there was a surrounding so complex so that all the other archetypes that make up the animal kingdom are present really in the human being spread out over the earth I find this a beautiful idea and now do you see what we're doing we are drastically simplifying the environment every day I haven't got the figures but masses of numbers of species of the animal and plant are simply being exterminated. And we think, oh, what does it matter? If we lose the dolphins, what does it matter? Oh, the whales, well, what about them? But all these things together make the environment which makes it possible for the spiritual being of man to descend and live on this level. <coughs> 
And if we go on simplifying, we're going to make it impossible for the human being to stay here. Let me spend one minute on one wonderful thing. This is a quoted from a a paper by Sir Ernest Gavers, uh training civil servants called Plain English and he quotes an essay by a child aged 10 who is asked to write an essay on a bird and a beast the bird I'm going to choose is the owl. The owl cannot see by day and by night is as blind as a bat. I do not know much about the owl. So I will go on to the beast I'm going to choose. It is the cow. The cow is a mammal. It has six sides. Right, left, and upper, and below. At the front end is the head. The purpose, the head is for the purpose of growing horns and so that the mouth can be somewhere. At the other end hangs the brush. The brush is for the purpose of sending flies away so they don't get into the milk. Under the cow hangs the milk. It is arranged for milking. How the cow does it I have not yet realized. But it makes more and more. The cow has a fine sense of smell. You can smell it far away. <laughs> this is the reason for the fresh air in the country. The male cow is not a mammal. When it is uh, hung, when the cow is hungry, the cow does not eat much, but it eats what it eats. It eats twice so that it gets enough. <laughs> when it is hungry, it moves, and when it is silent, it means that its inside is all full up with grass. Now, forgive me for including that priceless essay and uh, Gower's comment is why is it that when you are ten you say so that the mouth may be somewhere and perhaps when you are thirty in order that the mouth may be appropriately positioned environmentally <laughs> so we are being given the sense that Take this as a thought, not as a belief, but work with it as an imaginative thought. That we are last to appear in creation, not because we've grown out of monkeys, but that we are the fulfilling and realization of the divine archetype on earth. And that earth and nature is a most wondrous 
design and work of art. And we are not mere observers of nature, but we are that point where nature has become self-conscious and could therefore think God's thoughts again and realize our, well, self-consciousness, realize that we are a self, that we, a divine droplet, come down to earth long, long evolution to the point that consciousness is achieved and then self-consciousness and this is why after infinite, infinite eons we are now at this point this critical point of waking up the earth is now able to wake up we are integrally part of the earth we are the organ of consciousness of the earth the divine point so that the earth is waking up and beginning to think and beginning to feel through us and over the earth now is this, are these teeming hordes of human beings who are all part of nature and who if they could learn to recognize the oneness, recognize their wholeness, recognize the totality of the oneness of everything, of which we are consciously part, and of which we are the rightful stewards, then the redemption of the planet would be possible. And you have to understand that it's not till our time that this conception can really be got hold of. And we can really grasp, go away from here with the holding the conception. Don't believe it or disbelieve it, but live it. That you are a point of the earth which has become self-conscious. And that from that we can realize that we are all part of one great being. Here's a lovely point. As I, from my position on the platform, look into all your eyes, think what's happening. The divinity in you and the divinity in me can look through this wonderful organ of the eye. See nature from inside. And as I look at you, you don't need to respond. It's a thing we normally can't do. Uh, you can't gaze into another person's eyes unless you're a child or a lover. You've got to reply, be polite, smile, look away. But if you, for the time being, cut out uh, emotion in any way and just look at the phenomenon of the eye and think that out of those eyes a divine being is looking. And as I look at you, and you look at me, and you look at each other, and you look into the human eye, you can realize that we are all part of one stupendous whole. That humanity is one vast being of which we ourselves each a tiny cell. Well, 
doing what Ken Carey in his wonderful book Starseed Transmissions the Christ speaking tells us to do to stop identifying with your separated self and identify with the totality of humanity as one immense being that's an imaginative step and it's going to lead you see if I look at you like this if you look at somebody else there with this in mind you are divine I am divine you are a Christed being and so am I Christ can live in us God is in us if I were now to hurt you insult you rob you let alone marry you I would obviously take on my soul a weight that had to be cleared do what you like said God take what you want says God take it and pay for it some old motto says here and we are waking up to this stupendous truth that humanity is one immense being stop I repeat identifying with your separated self and with the exercise of imagination identify with the totality of humanity as one immense being and that being is not identified with your body we began by realizing that the I in you is an immortal spiritual being unlimited in scale the archetype alive housed in the limiting temple if we come to a time when things happen and a lot of people lose their bodies by flood or fire or earthquake or whatever that's not killing anything that simply means that you are released just think if now the great tidal wave the earth shifted its axis and a vast tidal wave swept across London in one wet moment we should all be through now more than ever were it good to die I mean it'd be wonderful we'd all be through and alive as a group striving to think into God and as a group we should lift up into the light glory be now this is the sensational world we're living in and this is why it is because everything is imminent now changes are coming and this is why it's so vitally important to realize that humanity is one immense being and we are each a cell of it and that it is animated by a wonderful force which is called love that is the power of the living Christ I'm going to end on a little quotation I think it's medieval you shall know him when he comes not by any din of drums not by the vantage of his airs nor by anything he wears not by his gown nor his crown but his coming known shall be by the holy harmony that his presence makes in thee his coming known shall be by the holy harmony
that his presence makes in thee. Take that away with you and realize that many are now experiencing this holy harmony, this love within the heart, this new tolerance and new gentleness, and a love, an uncritical love, an ability not to criticize the cynical undermine. Take a last thought from me, there is what is called the perfect language. You can choose, obviously, to cut out of your vocabulary all the words of criticism, cynicism, dislike, hate, anger, cruelty, bitterness. If you use those words, your soul will, it'll feed those qualities in your soul. If you cut out those words, then those, the corresponding faculty in your soul will tend to dissolve and die. In other words, a new kind of human being is coming to birth in our time, who is capable in time of taking over the earth. I think my time is up and I think that is not a bad point to have reached. <laughs>